Established in 2006, Beth Morrison Projects identifies and supports the work of emerging and established living composers and their multimedia collaborators through commission, development, production, and touring of their works, which take the form of contemporary music theater, opera theater, and multimedia concert works. I sat down with creative producer Beth Morrison in Los Angeles to discuss her current production, Prism, an opera by Ellen Reed at L.A. Opera. So, uh, Beth, welcome to Classical Chop Studio. Thank you. So great to have you here and to finally meet you. So you're in town to do Ellen Reed's new, I guess we'll say opera, Prism. You talk a little bit about that and and what makes it an opera, what makes sure. it music theater. Yeah, no, it's definitely an opera. Um, it's her first opera, and we've been working on it for the last five years. Wow. <laughs> um, so it's been a long gestation period. It's a piece that is about a psychological drama between a mother and a daughter um, and a trauma that occurred and the means after the trauma that the mother has gone to to try and make up for that trauma or or cover up that trauma maybe is a better way to say it and we it started actually um as a different piece also a mother-daughter story but a different piece that we did um in 2014 um at my prototype festival as a work in progress and um so was it more of a song cycle at first? No, it was it was scenes. Scenes, okay. Yeah. You know, I knew at the time that we decided to do this work in progress at that time that the piece wasn't ready, but I really was so thrilled and exciting, excited about Ellen and her music. I just wanted to get her work out into the world. And actually, maybe it was 2015 we did that. And, um, and for her to you know, have a chance to have a platform where uh, the industry would would see her work and hear her work. So that happened, which was great. And people got very excited about her and she got the Master Chorale Commission came sort of as a result of that. And then it became clear we needed to really like do a lot of work on the piece. Yeah. And so we actually changed librettists and since then have been working uh, for the last three or four years with Roxy Perkins, who is the current and final librettist um, on the project. So it's been um, a long period of workshops and gestation and rewrites and, you know, lot, a lot of developmental work um, that we also shared and did with a couple of really wonderful educational institutions. So um, a lot of times the way that I do the developmental work for these projects is to partner with educational institutions. So we did our first workshop with Arizona State University School of Music, which um, is one of my alma maters. And they were able to do um, a full orchestral workshop. And what we were trying to figure out for Ellen was what are the sound worlds for each act working? So she wanted to, the initial idea was to do 10 minutes of each act and see, are these, are the sound worlds working? Should she proceed in this vein for the rest of the score? So this is incredibly helpful and useful. We did a lot of work on the libretto and storytelling as well. Then about a year uh, or so went by and then we did a final workshop at University of Illinois um, Lyric Theater um, at Champaign-Urbana. This is before anything's been staged? so it's Yes, this is huh. all just work on wow. the music and the storytelling. What an um, amazing luxury. 
Well, I mean, this it's, is incredible. I actually don't consider it a luxury. I consider it my job. Uh, um, okay, so incredible. Th- yeah, so this is like operas just don't pop out of the box perfect. And um, I think the industry has finally realized that. And so um, most people now who are doing new work are understanding that there has to be a developmental process that goes along with that. And so. it seems like this developmental process needs to come in the beginning stages. Yes, is that it does. It philosophy? does, yeah. So, I mean, typically... Like like if, a, you know, when we embark on a new opera project, typically knowing that it's going to take us three to five years for that piece to come to completion. And the steps that we kind of do along the way are a libretto workshop, um, which can be just the creators and myself and the director sitting at an, at a table reading. It could be hiring actors. Um, it could be public. It could be not public. I basically try to tailor the process to whatever the writers need and whatever they want. And some librettists and composers want to hear actors do it right from the start. For some people, if they hear that, it completely shuts them down right. and they can't see where the music goes um, when it's read like a play. Right. Um, right. So we tailor that. Then after the libretto workshop, workshops, generally more than one, we then head on to typically a piano vocal workshop. And um, that really is about... The storytelling, is the storytelling working? Is the vocal writing working? Do we have the right characters in the piece? Like, are they the right voice types? And that typically, you know, will be anywhere between one and three weeks. Um, Again, we tend to like to do these, if possible, with educational institutions. And then after that, you know, generally then like another year may go by where they're kind of doing rewrites and then orchestrating. And then we'll do a a full orchestral workshop, um, again, generally with a school. It's unbelievable. So your hat really changes during this process from kind of connector to yeah, I mean, creative as a, director. Yeah, as creative producer, like my job is really, well, many, many parts of the job at different stages. But in these early stages, it really is about assembling the creative team. Um, so if the composer comes to me with an idea, they don't have a librettist, then I help them find a librettist. Composer comes to me with a librettist and they don't have a director, I help them find the director. Do you ever have the librettist come to you without a composer? Sometimes, oh, yeah, sometimes. Um, and I would say that, you know, the dis- those decisions are probably the most important decisions that get made in a project. And they're the most instinctual decisions as well. So it's me really, really knowing the composers and what their work is, also how they work and what they need in a collaborator. And so once the the creative team is assembled and we sort of like are on the path to like what this thing to is. To making something, right. Then I, I kind of start to function um, as a dramaturg. Um, so I work a lot in the storytelling and feedback in that realm, um, generally with the director and sometimes an actual dramaturg on the project. And then, you know, each step, like we advance as a creative team in that conversation, and I'm part of that early conversation along the whole way, giving feedback, helping to, you know, guide and structure. And then once, you know, we hit a rehearsal room where, you know, here we are like three weeks ago, we went into rehearsal for PRISM. Then it's time for me to step back and really let the director just do the work in the room. And I try to stay out of the room um, during those three weeks, you know, 
and I generally like to come in twice a week to kind of see how things are happening in a six-day period for a couple hours at a time. I don't stay full days because I really want to give the the room for the director to do the work without, you know, people feeling pressured that the producer's in the room. Right. Which right. I don't like people to feel anyways because I tend to work so close to the process and be there so much that people, my hope is that people are just like, oh, Beth's here. It's just like, I'm just like, you know. Another collaborator. Yeah, exactly. I'm just another collaborator. She's part of the furniture, you know. It's not like, <laughs> oh, the producer's in the room and everybody gets tense about it. But then while I'm doing that kind of work, um, my team, which I have a, a staff of eight people, that they're then doing all of the logistical work. And so they're doing all the contracting, all of the um, logistics of setting up rehearsals, of working with the designers to realize their, their vision, what the rehearsal room needs are touring, you know, all the housing, all the travel, all like, so there's a hell of a lot of logistics <laughs> that go into any one of these productions. And so my team um, at BMP does all of that work. And that's why this is opera, because there's a yeah, hell. Of there's it. a hell of a lot of stuff. Um, and my work is really the creative work and fundraising. And, then a, uh, and finding the gigs. Finding the, I like those that. Are, those are my, finding three, those the are my three buckets, yeah. And it seems like an important component for your productions is that they are able to be toured with. Is yeah. that... Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, from the very beginning, so my company's 13 years old now. From the very beginning, um, I've always, I've always toured the work. You know, it's become more and more as we've gotten older and more successful. But the model from the beginning was always that we were a nonprofit that was able to raise money to capitalize the projects and that then we would do the the touring route where we wouldn't fundraise the touring but the touring would pay for itself it would help kick back a royalty to us for the investment that we made into the production it, it gives us a producing fee to do the work so the touring end of things is not the financial issue. The capitalization of the projects um, are where all the money goes that I have to raise. Um, and so that that sort of balance of nonprofit, I, I can't really say for-profit because we're a nonprofit company, but, the, but that the model of the touring is really one that it supports itself and we're not fundraising that aspect right. of it. Now, what, what have you found out about when we come to like capitalizing for the operas? Um, finding donors and what are you learning about opera in general like in funding it and yeah i mean you know it's you know from the beginning um so the first show i ever did was twenty thousand dollars and i never thought that i could possibly raise twenty thousand dollars 13 years ago right. in new york in a city where i didn't know i didn't know anybody and that felt like the hardest thing that I could possibly ever do is like climbing a mountain. Now our projects, you know, are between two hundred fifty and three hundred thousand dollars a show, and um, we do five world premieres a year, basically. So now, we're raising find, a lot of money. Did you have to go out and find a whole new donor base for this? Well, I developed a new donor okay, base. I, um, I mean, I developed a donor base, I should say, um, for the work, and um, because we're working a lot in Los Angeles, we have a donor pool both in Los Angeles and in New York. Um, we consider ourselves a bike coastal company and um, our board is made up of some New York board members and some Los Angeles board members. So it's, you know, I mean, finding donors is always challenging, but it's also when you find people who are like-minded and, you know, of of mind and spirit and heart as, as I am, as my company um, is, it's like just this beautiful relationship that gets started you know it's like a, a wonderful thing and it's like to have people believe in you enough that they want to actually help fund you with right, their money right. is something that I don't think I will ever take for granted 
Right, right. So good. You're amazing. So I guess, also, what about the crossover with the donors? Sorry to keep going back to this, yeah, but like, do you okay. see the same kind of donor that didn't do Madam Butterfly also into prison? Yeah, some. Um, I would say not so much. Okay. Um, the donors that fund our work tend to be very interested in new music and new ways of storytelling. Um, they're less interested in the standard repertoire. But some, there are certainly some that enjoy both and love both. Um, I would say uh, in New York, we have probably more of those that are real lovers of the operatic canon, but then also very interested in the new work. Um, in LA, I think people are more interested in the new. Um, <laughs> Definitely. Which, yeah, which is great. And um, I don't know, it's just been really fun getting to know the artistic community out here in Los Angeles and the community of philanthropists that support the artists. I was also wanted to talk about um, Angel's Bone. Can you tell me a little bit about that production? Sure, yeah. So Angel's Bone is a piece that we premiered in um, Prototype Festival, which is a festival I started with here at Art Center in 2013. Maybe give us a little background on Prototype yeah, as well. Yeah, I'll do that as well, yeah. Um, so we premiered we premiered Angel's Bone in Prototype in 2016. It went on to win the Pulitzer in 17. Um, the composer is Du Yan, and the librettist is Royce Vavrick. The director is Michael Joseph McQuilkin. It's a a piece, uh, an original story that Royce um, and Dion came up with, um, which essentially is about sex trafficking, but it's told in kind of a very fantastical way. So there's this couple, Mr. and Mrs. XE, and they are, you know, standard American couple. Their marriage seems to be pretty chilly, and uh, they don't seem to be very happy people. One day, Mr. Xe finds two fallen angels in the garden, and um, he brings them into his wife. And through a series of, you know, sort of horrific things, um, they basically turn these angels they human traffic them. And so some of it is sex, some of it is other things, you know, blessing things and, you know, mm. that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but uh, but it really sort of shines a light on what Dion was interested in, which was the sort of middleman in the sort of trafficking industry. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a heavy subject, but it's told in this sort of very fantastical way, um, which you can do in opera. We premiered the piece in the festival at a, a space called 3LD in New York City, which is an open floor kind of warehouse type space. Um, very tight ceilings, like short ceilings. And, and then we just had the opportunity to take it to Hong Kong for its Asian premiere. And we put it into um, an 800-seat proscenium space, huge stage. Um, the stage had a platform and a hydraulic system, which like we completely exploded out the production to fit that stage. And it's so gorgeous. We just are so proud of the work that um, the artists are able to were able to do to accomplish putting this into a totally new kind of a space. Um, and it's kick-started as always happens. It's kick-started some other interest. Um, my hope is we'll do it out here p potentially next season. Fantastic. So we'll see. Um, and uh, and there's also interest in Beijing as well. So the hope is that, you know, every time you get a chance to resurrect one of these works, people, generally the composer's credibility, because I work with a lot of young composers, has grown substantially from the premiere. Of course, winning the Pulitzer. Uh, that, that happened <laughs> with this piece. Um, Duyan is now getting a ton of commissions and engagements, as she should. She's extraordinary. Very unique, 
a totally unique person and composer. You know, so it's fun to like have the opportunity to kickstart again and then to see like, okay, great. So here we are now. We're all here. Now where does this piece go? Um, right. And that's kind of the moment we're in with Angel's Bone. Now, do you work in traditional opera as well? I don't. You no, don't? No. Um, so, I mean, I started, you know, as a singer, and um, I just never really was interested in the form because I had never seen a production that I was interested in. It That's just, where I was going. Like, it must be difficult for you to go see some. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, I love, you know, I, I love opera, and I love seeing some of the standards, and I, I spent, you know, some time doing that. Not a lot of time. I tend to really like the stuff that is newer, but, um, but you know, the, the canon is what it is because it's phenomenal music, and it should last, and it should be lasting. I just, when I started and why I started the company is because I just never saw a production that I was interested in. I was just bored through most of it. And things have changed a lot, I think, since that time. And when I decided to go back to school, which was like 15 years ago now, to um, sort of change my path and start my company, you know, things are very different. But I think still, you know, what BMP is always trying to do is really push the envelope of the theatricality of the art form and to really work with the cutting edge artists, designers, directors from theater of today that can really bring our art form to a place that has the the theatrical viability um, of a great play. And, um, and then when that happens, then we're the best art form there is because you have all of the art forms working together at the highest level. And we really like to take advantage of the sort of modern technologies. And, um, you know, we do a lot of sound design in our projects. Um, We do a lot of video and other multimedia, other forms of new technologies. And so we're always trying to push that envelope of what can come into our art form um, that is happening in other different ways to actually make this art form feel not something of 400 years ago, but something of today and of this moment and that our culture, not just a white Western culture, but that other, you know, other cultures can come to and experience and feel like they can be invested in this as well. Well, it seems like the goal for you is just telling the story as best you can. Yeah, right? for sure. And the, and it's also finding the stories to tell. Right. And so I think that that's also equally important. Um, you know, when I'm looking at new pieces, I'm always looking for, and I always ask this to the writers, why tell this story now? What is this about today that is relevant, that is urgent? Like, why does an audience of the 21st century in 2018 need to hear this piece? And if they can't answer that, then I generally don't work <laughs> right. with them, you right. know, because right. I really do feel that there's a there's an arena for work that may not be connected to our, our current culture, but that's not the work that I feel compelled to put into the world. Right, right. Now, is this how you use prototype? Yeah, so prototype is a, you know, we started it in 2013. It's sort of my dream to be able to create a festival in New York in January, which would exist around the industry conferences. Um, So there's a bunch of industry conferences, ISPA, APAP, Opera New Works Forum, um, which bring venue directors from around the world to New York City at that time for conferences. And then there's a ton of work that's happening through festivals in New York City that people are able to come 
come and see and they're shopping to bring back work to their home venues. Well, there's nothing at that time to showcase the kind of work that BMP produces. And I wasn't able to get the work into these other festivals because they just weren't about that kind of work. And so I was very frustrated by that and feeling really handicapped that all of these directors are in town looking for work, but I can't show them my work and the work of the artists that I'm working with. Fast forward, you know, now we, we, I found a prototype with my co-producer here, Art Center in New York, and the Mellon Foundation gave us lead funding um, to kick kickstart that off and we have their their funding now step down funding for the next few years so they've been consistent funding throughout the whole life cycle of the of the festival the festival is about presenting contemporary opera theater and music theater works that are meant to tour some of that work is bmp's work that we've developed a fair amount of it is. Some of that work is work that has been developed by our co-producers here at their artist residency program. And some of that is work that we're presenting internationally that I've seen or that our, the other directors have seen in another place um, that we then bring in and present. And we do national and international presentations of work. So this year we're presenting 448 Psychosis by Philip Venables um, based on Sarah Sarah Kane's play, um, which was at the Royal Opera House in London and their Limbury studio and uh, was a huge success. So we're really thrilled to be able to give it its U.S. debut. And um, that's a big part of what the festival is about. That makes me so happy. I love that play. It's an amazing I, play. I saw it's it, devastating, um, but it's amazing. I forgot what year it was, but Isabel Huppert came oh, to yeah. do it at UCLA. Yeah. I didn't know what I was getting into. Yeah. And two yeah. and a half hours later. Yeah. No, it's it's, it's just beyond. devastating, yeah. but it's so incredible. And the, the opera is Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, it's really exciting. Tell me a little bit about technology. I know we've touched on it a little bit, how how it is expanding and evolving in the realm of opera. I think it was, um, yeah, Persona, right, had a Yeah, I mean, essentially all of our projects have video. Um, I think, uh, actually, Prism is, is one of three projects we've done that, and we've premiered over 55 projects that haven't used video. Persona was some, was one of the ones that um, used live video feed, um, and the mise-en-scene of the show was that it was on a film set. So we basically created what a film set would be with the kinds of instruments that you use for filming. The, the filming artists, the film crew themselves, were part of the acting crew, really, um, that they were on the stage the whole time and filming. And we had... When we did, we've done it in a bunch of different locations, and we were able to adapt that piece to whatever space we're in. When we did it in LA at Red Cat, um, I think we had something like nine screens um, that that were placed all around the stage in the space. So that's you know that's one one element. We we use live feed quite often. I would say actually a lot of times we use it mixed with pre made film as well, um, or other projection design. Um, And for us, typically, you know, we're not trying to, like, set the scene so much as we're trying to illuminate something else. Right, Um, right. And for, you know, it's interesting working, um, you know, co-producing stuff with opera companies that are maybe more standard than we are. Um, We always have budget line items for a video projection designer, for projectors for um, video engineer and you know that's those aren't cheap that adds up to a a significant amount of money but we always that's always in our budgets and so it's interesting to come to some of these companies who aren't doing that and they're like whoa we don't have the money for that (laughs) and you know we you know we don't do that kind of thing it's like okay but 
this is what this project is going to be. Like, this is what the artists want to do. And so I I see my position in the field um, very often as an agitator um, and somebody who's trying to push everything forward. And that's not always comfortable. It's not always comfortable for me. It's not always comfortable for the people that work with me. But I really do feel that that is my role in this field is to continuously push the art form forward into the 21st century, into this moment of the 21st century. And that's with the artists that's, that we work with, the composers we work with. That's with the technology that we use. That's with amplification of the voices. That's, you know, with a lot of stuff that that comes with that trajectory for whatever that piece is. But I don't I I don't really relent that place because I feel like that's a very important position for us to keep keep making sure BMP is always at the forefront of of the field and that we're always leading to what's next. Right. And when and when you have something in your toolbox that works, it doesn't make sense to just remove it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, for us, we just listen to the artists. Right. So that's that's all we're doing. So when I commission a piece, I'm not saying, okay, I want you to write an acoustic piece for three voices and ten players and you know, XYZ. I'm saying, what do you want to do? And if the you know, within our capacity, obviously. Right, like, right. we don't have a capacity for grand opera unless we're doing significant partnerships. And we have done them, and we we have a couple of pieces in that realm. But chamber pieces are really what we do. And so if, you know, a, a composer comes to us, they're like, okay, we want to do a piece that has six principles, a chorus of 16 people, and a band of 15. Like, okay, that's a big piece, actually. Like it's not a main it's not a main stage size piece, but it's a two it's too big for a second stage for most companies, which means I will give you a premiere of this work and I will figure out how to do that. And hopefully that will be on East and West Coast. And I can't guarantee you anything after that because it's gonna sit in a place that's gonna be very hard for other producers to do. I'm very clear about that. And then if they say okay, I'm going to take my chances on that and we're going to go for it like in this way because this is how I hear it. This is how I see it. Same thing with directors. Like there, we did a show last year in Prototype that was enormously expensive and for stupid reasons. Like you'd look at it and you'd be <laughs> like, that just can't be that expensive. But like for a variety of reasons, it was extremely expensive. It took a ton of technology to make the thing happen. And we said to the director on the outset, like this is not a piece that can tour. Like this piece is far too expensive to have a touring life. And they decided that they wanted to move ahead with the piece anyhow. We produced it. It was very hard on me to fundraise it, but I did it. And now it's like, of course, they wanted to tour. <laughs> and it's like, I'm, I will do my best to get a couple more engagements for this, but this isn't a piece that gonna, is going to have a big touring life. So I try to be open and honest and also say, if this is your vision, I'm going to work to give you your vision. Right. But I can't guarantee what happens after. Absolutely. Right. Now, when you saw this production, did, did you agree with the... Oh, I loved it. Oh, okay. I mean, the reason I, I engaged that director was to do something completely and totally, you know, outside the realm of what most people think of as opera. And he totally delivered, and it was absolutely incredible and took the industry by storm internationally. People absolutely loved this piece. There's a lot of interest, and then they see the numbers on how to make it work, and it's like, oh, actually, this is probably too, too far outside of what we can what we can do. Right, right. See, so, You know, I wanted to talk about I was fascinated by this idea of the song cycle be, being staged. So can we talk a little bit about that and sure. how how a song cycle 
becomes an opera, I guess. Sure, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I I will say, like, I think what I said earlier is that um, when I was in school, I was kind of disillusioned with opera. I just wasn't, it just never felt like it was my thing. Why was that? Can you pinpoint? Yeah, I just I just never saw one that I was interested in. It wasn't the music, really. It, wasn't the, yeah, right, it, yeah. it was the productions, and I just felt like the acting was terrible, and like, it just there's... I was a theater kid, so I was used to coming at things from that perspective, and and I just wasn't interested in it. And so what I really was interested in was art song and leader. And so I spent a ton of my time—I did a bachelor and master of music in vocal performance. I spent a ton of my time singing songs and song cycles. And so I have a deep, deep love and appreciation for that form. Um, and it's something that uh, when I started producing, I absolutely wanted to keep as part of what I do as a producer. So one of the big outlets for that has been something that um, I created with Paolo Prestini called the 21C Leader Abend. And it's the Leader Abend is something when you're in conservatory, vo- vocal programs tend to have Leader Abends. At least they did at that time. And I think they still do. You know, once a month we would have a Leader Abend. And that literally means song night. And it's something that came out of Schubert's salon days. Um, and it's a chance to just come together, sing for your friends and, you you know, invited guests and have an exchange, a musical exchange together through song. And so when we started the 21C Leader Abend, part of what we wanted to do with that was to update that form to the 21st century. And so what that meant for us is we created and curated these evenings of song that would go from piano vocal and explode that out over the course of the night to something like when we did it at BAM, we ended with this amazing band from Africa. So it was an opportunity for us to share with the audience what is song today in the 21st century and what can it do. As part of the Leader Abend, we always commission a song cycle. Um, and so the first one that we did was Kamala Sankaram and her piece, uh, Stock of Wheat. And that was our very first Leader Abend. After that piece, and that I, I went to Kamala with an idea of commissioning a work, a song cycle about the life of Mukhtar Mai, who's this incredible Pakistani woman's rights figure. She did that for the leader album. It was very beautiful. And she came to me after and she said, I think this is a full opera. And so then I worked with her over the next four years and we turned it into Thumbprint, which is an incredible opera about Mukhtar Mai's life. We did it here in Los Angeles uh, last year, year and a half ago um, at Red Cat. A huge success, gorgeous, gorgeous piece. Um, so the, the song cycle to me is a mini opera in some ways. Like, a song itself is a mini opera. You know, there's like a whole drama in a song that happens. Um, And then a song cycle allows that form to just expand a little bit. It is theatrical if you want it to be. Um, It is sort of inherently theatrical in that there's a storytelling that happens through it. And uh, certainly for the way that I look at things, I'm very interested in multimedia concert as a theatrical art form through song cycle. And so we do actually quite a lot of that. And with David Little's piece, Soldier Songs, like we call that piece opera through song cycle. And it was really sort of created in a, in a song cycle vein. And when David brought to me, I was like, oh, but this is actually an opera. And he was like, oh, really? I was <laughs> like, yeah, this is actually an opera. Um, and so we kind of conceived it in that way. But it really is opera through song cycle. 
Right. And could it go, I guess it could go the other way. Or maybe that is just opera if it goes the other direction. If you... Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> New forms. Though. Yeah, this is amazing. So what other forms are you kind of exploding with within the opera world? Well, within the, the opera, I mean, you know, we... We do a lot of stuff. So we don't just do opera. We also, um, like, we have these amazing projects that we do uh, with this incredible jazz composer, Darcy James Argue. And we've done a couple of, of pieces with him. They're very large-scale, multimedia, theatrical formats. And there's no text. And so for us, that's an opportunity to work in a very different kind of a realm. Um, and the storytelling in those pieces are done through the visual artists. Um, so we're really looking at storytelling through many mediums and many different ways. And about 70% of what we do uh, is opera, maybe at this point 80. And then there's another 20%, 30% that are these other kinds of music theater pieces. Um, we did a couple of pieces with Maya Beiser, the cellist, um, with these incredible, you know, cello performance pieces that involve dancers and some text and some sung things, but things that you can't really categorize. Mm-hmm. Um, we called her piece Elsewhere a cello opera. Um, you know, so, yeah, so we're always looking for the artists that are going to lead us down a path that is something that we wouldn't have thought of ourselves or we hadn't seen before. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, so tell me about what you, uh, after PRISM, what you have going on this so season. So after PRISM, um, we head into Prototype. So in December, we're in rehearsal, and then we go into Prototype in January with 13 different pieces um, oh <laughs> over a span of 10 days. Um, and it's insane and wonderful, um, very rich time of year for us. And so Prism will be one of the the uh, flagship pieces, as will 448, which we talked about. And then we're doing some other world premieres, um, The Infinite Hotel, which is a music theater piece, um, indie rock style music, some pieces written by Amanda Palmer, and um, that's by Michael Joseph McQuilkin. We're doing an opera cabaret piece, world premiere by Joseph Keckler, which is a very funny, like, small audience experience. Um, he is an incredible storyteller through music. And we're doing another world premiere, which is a cellist who also sings, a piece called This Tree. And that is about a woman's, sort of sort of the end of the line of the family tree, because the woman is not able to have children. And so that's sort of like the end of the line of her family. And then we've got some amazing world premieres of, uh, well, work in progress, I should say, concerts that we're doing, which uh, are by Andrea Clearfield and Francis Pollock. Um, and then we're doing a really fun outdoor free programming in Times Square of Partita for Eight Voices by Carolyn Shaw for um, the wonderful group Room Full of Teeth. Tell me a little bit about the singers and what are you noticing, like trends in the vocal world as far as... Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think with a lot of the work that we're doing, a lot of the composers are not interested in the traditional bel canto style of singing. Um, Are you finding the singers are adapting or they're... I think that they're... I think that there are certain singers who are making their careers because they have the flexibility to sing in, in multiple styles. And, um, you know, as a voice teacher for a long time, up until about five years ago, and my thing with my students was always to make them as versatile as possible and give them an opportunity to sing in lots of different styles. And I just think that that's the way that the form is going. So, you know, the more that a singer is able to sing with straight tone, to sing in musical theater style, to sing in jazz or pop, as well as to have the 
insane classical chops to do opera, um, those those are the singers who are going to work more. Um, and certainly those are singers that we hire more because we tend to work with composers who are looking for a greater demand of vocal abilities than just the sort of standard opera singer. Also, I think... Um, the time of like the opera singer who can just stand on the stage and sing is gone, like very gone. Um, I think everybody is looking for great actors um, as well as great singers. And I think people are looking for um, performers who look more the role as well. So where, you know, musical theater and film and acting just in general has always been this sort of, you know, you have to look your part where... That I think opera was slow to catch up to that. I feel like that's where we are now. There are some exceptions to that. The, like, amazing, like, you know, one-in-a-lifetime kind of voices that come around every 10 years. Um, they may be able to get away without uh, without those expectations, but but the average opera singer really can't. So for the uh, vocalists that, are, that might be listening, for those two areas— which is getting that kind of flexibility and uh, the acting, where would you suggest they go? Or how do you acquire these skills? Well, I mean, you know, there there are training programs, of course, for um, singers and conservatories. My experience with them is that there's never enough acting training that right. goes into those programs. And part of that's just because there's so much other things that you have to know as an opera singer. You know, you have to learn right, languages. Right. You have to you have to be good at, at, at theory and, re, you know, a great musician. Like, you have to build your technique. So, you know, kind of understandably, you can't do everything. Um, and, uh, and so I find that most opera programs are really at a deficit when it comes to acting training. So, you know, and you can get those classes anywhere. You know, if you're living in New York, right. there's like a million places right. you can go for acting training. And I think it's good for people to just be able to work in other realms too. So, you know, push yourself to be in a play, push yourself to be in a film where you have to just rely on those skills and not the skills of of your singing um, to sort of help bring those skills to the level that I think of the 21st century opera singer should have. Right. Seek out those, yeah. seek out those skills. Right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think the, the more that people build that toolbox, the more they will work and be known for, you know, being able to really portray a character as opposed to just doing it through, through the sound. Right. And I tell my students that, too. You're going to have a very narrow kind of creative engagement if you don't have these skills. Exactly. You don't. Exactly. Beth, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, it's my pleasure. An Thanks for having guest. me. Very, very happy to be here. And uh, always a good time to talk about opera. <laughs> yeah, it's always a good time. So PRISM is this month. Um, PRISM is November LA. 29th through December 2nd with LA Opera at Red Cat. And you can purchase tickets on the LA Opera website, laopera.org. I'm Brett Banducci, and you've been listening to Classical Chops Studio, the podcast from classicalchops.org. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube, and if you haven't already, please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening.